Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. It is always great to be with all of you. I hope and pray you're all having a wonderful summer with your families and your communities. And as is always true, there is never want, there is never a paucity of issues to talk about when we talk about political Islam, reform, wokeism, and the current state of affairs of the red-green axis, and currently how the Islamists are starting to tip their toe into the waters of the conservative movement and how... The conservatives are either catering to the Islamists or just not aware of what they're doing. A lot to talk about. We'll talk about donations by the Arab regimes to American universities and what they get in exchange for that. We'll talk about autocracy, democracy, liberty, the debate that I've wanted to have with what I believe, with who I believe is one of the leading Islamist brotherhood figures in the West, uh, Shadi Hamid, especially after the incarceration of Tariq Ramadan, the grandson of Hassan al-Banna. Shadi Hamid has sort of risen into a little more prominence, and uh, he has another book out. And Mustafa Akiol, who was with Cato and now is with Acton Institute, had an excellent response to sort of the majoritarian, the majoritocratic, mobocratic um, uh, issue related to a lot of the principles of Islamism. And we'll talk about that. So first, what is going on with all of the discussion and, and uh, hand-wringing in the Muslim communities and Muslim leadership and imams about gay rights, about LGBTQ issues. Well, as I talked to you in uh, the previous, uh, one of the recent uh, podcasts, we we looked at sort of the limits that the Islamists had where they didn't ever seem to have any problem with the way the gay communities treated in Iran, that they were thrown from cliffs, tortured, abused, that transgenderism is simply one of the highest incidents occurs in Iran because of its homophobia and the levels of pathology there are just too complicated to discuss. But at the end of the day, what is happening, and this week more materials coming out. Remember I told you about that Navigating Differences piece that supposedly was authored by hundreds of American imams. It looks like now in a piece, Yasser Qadi seems to have taken credit for writing that Yasser Qadi. Now, who's Yasser Qadi? The New York Times featured him as somewhat one of these moderate previous radical imams who was helping the government deprogram Al-Qaeda, was helping the government to de-radicalize, counter-radicalize. And many of us were trying to, uh, from the rooftops, exclaim the dangers associated with 
our government that believes in separation of powers, that believes in establishment clause, that rejects political Islam and the Islamic states and the threat that it poses on radicalization and jihadization, if you will, that we should stay far, far away from the likes of Yasser Qadi. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, I've had a few entanglements with the fundamentalist, anti-American um, himself. I think he has somewhere to half a million followers. Bottom line is, is I find him to be exceedingly dangerous, and I've talked about it before. But now he has a piece in, interestingly, in Al Jazeera. I say interestingly because Al Jazeera is obviously a state of Qatar, a Qatar state propaganda arm. Some say research shows that 90% of its employees and reporters are Muslim Brotherhood devotees, if not members, and makes them a, a Islamist arm, if you will. And certainly most of the core viral anti-American, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic media coming out of the Middle East originates and begins at Al Jazeera. But again, the the Yasser Qadi, Q-A-D-H-I, the Yasser Qadis of the world are more sort of neo-Salafite. They're more fundamentalist, orthodox, and they, they reject some of the political Islamic uh, compromises, if you will. So they have tried to stay away from the cares of the world, the impacts, Islamic societies of North America. Now they will certainly share the pools of Islamist hegemony, hegemonization, if you will, the pools of anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism as they swim in it together. But they will form their own groups. Yasser Qadi with his Al-Maghrib Institute and other places that he comes to and from as he shifts from mosque to mosque um, has stayed in his own sort of neo cellophite mentality. And you can look that up if it's beyond your scope. But at the end of the day, think of it like a sort of orthodoxy regarding uh, fundamentalism when it comes to political and non-political Islam. Now, his piece this week is beginning to go deeper beyond that statement that the imams made about navigating differences. And this one he titled, Muslims opposed to LGBTQ curricula for their kids aren't bigots. And he starts by saying, we are witnessing a unique and welcome phenomena. Muslims in the West are at the forefront of a social movement that transcends any one faith or ethnicity. For those following the news, protests led by parents have erupted across the United States and Canada against school boards that wish to teach school children content about the acceptability of LGBTQ lifestyles. While parents and of all ethnicities are involved, Muslim parents have been playing a central role in these cases, both as organizers and protesters, and their highly visible presence is creating waves on social media. And he goes on, it is understandable for parents to be concerned. Parents have a God-given duty, legal right, to provide moral interaction and guidance for their children. Okay, that sounds 
acceptable to many of us. Um, but he notes it's supposedly secular institutions like public schools are now dictating the students must accept and affirm LGBTQ ideology. And at times with the threat that if they refuse to do so, they do not belong in their country, as one teacher recently said to a Muslim student. Oh, so now they haven't said anything about this for decades while they marched with gay rights parades, while they marched in in unison with the progressivists and their red-green movements and the anti-American, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic mantras that they have, with the BDS movements that has tried to get oxygen from the progressivists. That didn't seem to matter. And yet, he's speaking for all Muslims. He says in Al Jazeera, as Muslims we refuse to be coerced into believing something our faith categorically condemns. So now he's speaking for God, this guy. This is not a political stance. It's a moral principle. And then he talks about helping draft that Navigating Differences document. The statement he wrote, he said, is a reference point to demonstrate to school boards and employers why Muslims must be excused from activities that contradict our religious ideals. Oh, okay, thank you for representing us, you radical. And my point here is that my position is schools should stay out of all these sexuality discussions. It's, it's the role of parents to discuss whatever ideas you have on these things and not for the schoolroom classroom funded by tax monies from all different stripes of Americans to teach these things. But now what is, what is so important in Qadi's writings is, is not only how hypocritical, but it sort of exposes how of a core Islamist he is. Yes, he's a neo-Salafist, more fundamentalist, and not a fan necessarily of the Brotherhood, but he is at his core an Islamic State supremacist. He said that the fact, um, I'm sorry, he said, those who have committed themselves to a left-wing liberal ideology, including some progressive Muslims, are outraged and ashamed of anything short of the full affirmation and acceptance of LGBTQ demands. They point to our own experience of oppression as a Muslim minority and say we should thus show reciprocity to other marginalized groups. And then he says the fact that conservative media outlets have provided a platform for Muslim parents to share their grievances is supposedly conclusive proof that these protesters and all of us who oppose the teachings of LGBTQ agenda in schools are aligning themselves with the far right. To be sure, the sudden friendliness of politically conservative groups and media outlets towards Muslims is indeed tempting. But again, just like flirting with the left, they're making a mistake again. And here it is. Muslims across North America, Qadi says, should firmly root their moral values in their faith, not in a specific political ideology. To understand why this distraction, distinction is so critical, we ought to heed a lesson from our recent past, and he goes on to talk about the reality of American Muslims post 9-11 in his own propagandistic method. And that the proof of the pudding here is that Qadi is clearly articulating that his faith is a political ideology. That in the laws and discussions of the day, somehow when he falls on whether it's 
his anti-Semitism about the position, his position against the entire state of Israel, his support of BDS, his support of, of all the things that are against our country, our patriotism, our national identity, our national security, and his promotion of jihad and his promotion of the Islamic states, that is a political ideology. And this is why at our American Islamic Forum for Democracy, we talk about the separation of mosque and state. Qadi never does. And all of his hundreds of imams in America, because at the core root, while there might be some social touch points like the gay rights issues, like the uh, multiple other issues that I've talked about here, at the end of the day, they will one week reject the left, the next week reject the right because they are at their core the Islamists are anti-American whether it's Turkey's, Erdogan's AKP, Islamist party, the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt Al-Jamaat Islamiyyah the Islamic party of Pakistan the Khomeinist of Iran all of these parties might dabble and have at their core plank socialism, for example, as they control their economy, so thus they love the left. They might dabble in they supposed family values, but ultimately it's an oppressive imposition of those values. And then they say they have some affinity for the right. But at the end... They have affinity for one thing, and that's an Islamic state. That's a Sharia state where the jurisprudence is not secular liberal law in the West where we argue reason, we talk universal rights. No, their guiding principle is not under God, but under Islam. One flavor of God's faith, which is the Islamic flavor. So thus, if you're not Muslim, you can't really have an opinion on Yasser Qadi's position, can you? And he talks about Muslims in a collectivist somehow monolithic way that there's only one interpretation same thing with Shadi Hamid who I'll talk about in a bit so they can yell all they want that it's not a political ideology but a faith but he conveniently dismisses that his weighing in on all these political issues creates a political ideology which is Islamism to him it's just Islam and we can dance on the head of that pin if you want. But to me, the only way to hold your faith personally, pietistically in America as a Muslim and not be in conflict with the Constitution is to begin the tough work, the hard work of reform and reject political movements and begin to first embrace, I as a conservative, embrace the conservative movement, which is small government strong national security against ideologies that threaten us like political Islam and jihadism, free markets, the Bill of Rights, belief in the Constitution, constitutionalism, originalism, and its rights, including the first, second, third, all the amendments, the right to bear arms, free speech, all of these things that are part of the conservative movement is based in principles of universal rights that I've believed since I was young. 
And thus, when it comes in conflict with progressivism or those things, it's clear what my political ideology is. Now, my faith inspires me personally to get closer to God, to be moral, to be humble. All of the principles of character are inspired by these things, but I don't seek guidance from clerics and political Islamist movements. That is what defines the difference between Muslim patriots and Muslim insurgents who ultimately, like Yasser Qadi, reject major political parties in the West and in, in exchange for what they call their faith but is actually a political movement. Next, let's take a look at Cato's latest coming from John Hoffman. Uh, John Hoffman is a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute and holds a PhD in political science from George Mason University. And his piece last week published was called Middle East Autocrats, Islamophobia and Reverse Orientalism. And this Cato piece is published by the propaganda arm of the Georgetown University funded by the Saudis, by bin Talal before he was taken to the woodshed in 2017 at the Bridge Initiative, folks that I've debated on TRT and elsewhere before. But his piece was published there. Now, how could liberty-minded think tank like Cato find a place for its writings at Bridge Initiative? Well, as I read this, I figured out why they accepted it. It's a I think it violates a lot of the core principles of libertarianism that Cato claims that John Hoffman seems to represent. Uses the term in the title, Islamophobia, and calls it reverse Orientalism, which somehow, I guess, means that the kings and the autocrats of the Middle East are basically doing the acts of what the colonialists and the Orientalists used to do. He opens his piece by saying the legacies of entrenched Orientalist frameworks and dispositions continue to influence scholarship and discussions of the Middle East and Muslims. In his iconic work on the subject, Edward Said wrote in Orientalism that a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient. Now, it is complete idiocy to quote Said. He was an anti-Semite. He was a professor that seemed to only see everything as the fault of the West, was never talking about Islamic reform, looked at it like an aggrieved, uninformed Arab Christian who knew nothing about Islam or basically was parroting the Islamist mantra of either large movements in the Middle East or his monarchical benefactors. The hegemonic position of the West as Hoffman further writes, coupled with an epistemological and ontological distinction made between the Occident and the Orient, has allowed the former to dictate scholarship on the latter. The ideas that the people of the Middle East are not ready for democracy or that Islam is not compatible with democratic system of governance are some of the most prominent Orientalist tropes that have permeated academic and policy debates concerning the Middle East for decades. That is just so insulting. What, what, what planet is this guy living on that he thinks that these are Orientalist tropes when in fact 
Yes, there are horrific war crimes being committed by the likes of Assad and NBS and, and others that are just dictators and mafiosos, if you will. But to then say, oh, well, then, then there's an Islam there that's compatible. There isn't. It needs reform. There's been no institutions that have, there's been many scholars that have been trying to write about it. They've paid for it often dearly with their lives. Yes, there's books here and there, but there's no established legal reformed school of thought that can be couched in Western liberal democracy in the 21st century. It's absurd to say this. And then he goes on to criticize Bernard Lewis as being some kind of a bigot who's actually one of the most preeminent respected scholars on the Middle East in the last hundred years. And he notes that Lewis writes, democracy is a political concept that has no history, no record whatever in the Arab Islamic world. They, Arabs and Muslims, are simply not ready for free and fair elections. That doesn't take away their human rights. It doesn't take away their humanity. It's, a, it's an assessment of the current reality. If I talk about my patient, that my patient is near hospice, has terminal condition, and there does not appear to be cure for their cancer, that does not in any way demean my respect for that patient. And the reality is, is the cancer across the Middle East is political Islam and amplified by the secular military dictatorships and ruthless inhuman rule that many if not most of these regimes have and we've tried to amplify the voices of change there including in Syria and elsewhere and again it's been fraught with failure and fraught with danger and worsening in the situation but yet they continue to demonstrate courage against it, many of those in societies, but others are actually exploiting it. The Islamists are exploiting the situation in order to say that their, their replacement of dictatorship is democratic. And then he goes on to talk about the political elites in the Middle East, He says it's impressive to recognize how these local actors weaponize a form of reverse interorientalism to maintain support from their Western allies and benefactors. These efforts are designed to reproduce and perpetuate the myth of authoritarian stability. Now, I agree with that. It's a good point, which we've said on this program many times, is that for too long as... Condoleezza Rice said in 2005 in Egypt and so many others, for too long we've exchanged freedom for stability and we've gotten neither. It's been created more instability because of authoritarian rule causing deep, deep, deep pathology, punishments in human behavior against innocent civilians and innocent society members and citizens that is creating the need for revolution, the need to destroy and defeat the regimes that are controlling them. And that's, isn't that the foundation of America? Was a revolution against theocracy, against authoritarianism? And that's what they're trying to do. 
but the exchange is not just binary. There is other methods, other principles that can be looked at here. And he talks about the oversimplification of the Muslim world, and that is also very true. So John Hoffman, if you will, talks about some truths, but also seems to have taken hook, line, and sinker the Islamist victimization mantra, the uh, ignorance that somehow they're out there, there's a reform Islam that just hasn't been getting the light of day. Well, we're working on it. There is a Muslim reform movement, but um, to, to say that there is books and books, that there is a school of thought out there that is palpable enough to legitimately say that moderate Western Islam exists among millions upon millions? Um, not yet. And then he talks about the Arab uprisings. And I think now if you look, the debate has finally begun to move towards what is Islamism? It's not just radical terrorism of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. It is a political movement that is it a byproduct of democracy or is it a byproduct of theocracy and supremacism? And I think that ultimate question is going to determine a failed American and Western foreign policy versus one that is successful. If we identify political Islam as a tolerable form of of protection of human rights, of protection of our values, of liberty, free markets, and our own national security, we will fail and we will succumb to the threats of Islamism as it ascends and as we usher it in, no different than we've continued to be suffering from the threat of the Chinas and Russias of the world that also reject our ideas of freedom. But if we begin to say, you know what, we are against anything that does not sit compatible with liberal democracy and universal human rights, and that Muslims' ability to practice their faith is personal and pietistic, is what we celebrate. It's part of religious freedom that we protect. But it doesn't have to be via political Islam, which is a majoritocratic mobocracy, which gives rights at the behest of Islam, not at the behest of God or the behest of universal equality. That difference is so key. It is so key. And yet John Hoffman, again, clearly falls on the wrong side of this debate. He says, Although militant Islamists tend to receive the majority of attention in media and policy circles within the West, mainstream Islamists, such as the Muslim Brotherhood and Nahda, that was the Tunisian party, are viewed by the majority of autocratic states in the Middle East as a more substantial threat to their rule than militant organizations due to the ability of these mainstream groups to peacefully mobilize large amounts of people around notions of democracy and human rights against the status quo. You know, he's not only seeing much more there, there than there is, but he's completely missing the importance of the need of countering political Islam, that actually the, the, the so-called moderates that use peaceful means where their ends justify the means, the terrorism is ends justifies the means, and their civil, you know, non-warfare, peaceful means is also an ends justifies the means for them because 
Islamists at the end of the day are coercive. They are collectivists. They don't believe in uh, um, succumbing to the rule of a separation of powers, the rule of protecting the rights of the one, of the, of the few, at the expense of the majority, which is really what was the Enlightenment, the post-Enlightenment, the post-modern era, was that protection of the rights of the few. And that when you protect the rights of the few, you end up helping society in general, and it's far preferable than simply voting in, as Ben Franklin said, three sheeps, three wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, which is mobocracy. And Hoffman gets that wrong. Hoffman believes that somehow we have to tip our hat to the Islamists as humanitarians, as those who, as long as they're peaceful, seem to have their own avenue towards human rights. I'm sorry, as a Muslim, I'll tell you, you are 100% wrong. 100%. Read. Read Sayyid Qutb. Read Hassan al-Banna's philosophy. Read the empowerment of their political movements. I just read to you Yasser Qadi's statement in Al Jazeera about that he doesn't believe in conservative or liberal values in America and the West. He believes in Islamic values. And what are those? It's pretty nondescript. Hoffman gets it wrong. And then he goes on to quote scholars that uh, we've been laughing about, including Bin Baya, including Hamza Yusuf, and saying that uh, their quotes about their societies not being ready for democracy, uh, or Hamza Yusuf, who said that the uprising represented a loss of reason, morality, human dignity, and led to widespread chaos, confusion, and civil wars, that somehow this is the counter-Orientalism. Um, uh, no, these, these guys are hypocrites. They are often afraid of regimes and will parrot what the regimes say in order to continue to have a seat at their table instead of creating our own Western table of reform and leading and, and taking the oxygen out of the supremacist Islamism that they have. And Hamza Yusuf, again, is a, a neo-Salafist who is often hard to pin down. Bin Bayah, similarly, these guys will speak against the Brotherhood, the Islamist viral grassroots movements, which are also jihadist, but they'll do so from a neo-Salafist perspective. So just because they're against the Brotherhood, and Hoffman here is in his apologetic about the Brotherhood. So let's look last at Mustafa Akil's excellent review of Shadi Hamid's recent book. He says, is democracy more precious than liberty? Hamid puts it elsewhere. He agrees that America's post-liberals, including the national conservatives, that it is inherent in classical liberalism ultimately to discard traditional conceptions of gender and sexuality and turn aside the views of anyone who objects. In other words, he agrees with neo-integralist scholars such as Patrick Deneen, who argue that American classical liberalism is intrinsically hostile to Christianity. 
and of course Islam too. And he goes on to finally hit the point here. He says, theoretically, the most interesting and to me the most unacceptable part of Hamid's argument is his dismissal of the very concept of universal rights. Rights are not freestanding, self-evident, or morally transcendent. Therefore, rights cannot be held above any democracy. Instead, rights will be derived from the democracy, according to Hamid. And, and Akil pointing this out is so validating to me, since this is the issue that I had with Hamid's first book, Islamic Exceptionalism. Because now he's arguing that whatever comes out of a democracy is fine. As Akio points out, a classical liberal, however, would insist that there are in fact universal rights which are rooted in natural law. But Hamid seems uninterested in that argument. The term natural law does not even appear in the book. How revealing is that? So Shadi Hamid in a Brookings Institute position funded by Qatar, the Islamist central cancer cell of the planet, funding to the tune of billions Islamist movements, and again, proving to be a good investment for those Islamists is Shadi Hamid. He makes this argument, as Akil says, against universality. There's a key flaw, as Akil says, for if there are no civil universal rights, such as freedom of speech and religion, why should there be an absolute right to vote? If his dismissal of liberalism is valid that it is a subjective Western system that other civilizations don't need, why is the same dismissal not valid for democracy as well? In fact, that is exactly why what the pro-regime ideologues in Beijing and Moscow and pro-ruler clerics in Riyadh and Dubai argue. Hamid seems to push this theoretical argument, according to Akio, mainly to substantive substantiate the legitimacy of democratically elected Islamists in the Middle East. And Akil pointedly says, I can see how it will be music to the ears of those Islamists, as well as many conservative Muslims who may be uninterested in the rights of secular individuals or non-Muslims in their midst, let alone the rights of those branded as heretics or apostates. Hamid's argument cuts both ways. In other words, it also means that in the context where Muslims are minorities, their rights can be curbed as well, this time by non-Muslim majorities. I confirmed this with Hamid on a lively panel about his book sponsored by the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy. I asked him whether in his world view it is legitimate for French seculars to ban Islamic veils. His answer was that he would not favor such bans, but yes, it would be legitimate. <laughs> so this is the issue. Wherever you stand on Islamic veils, I talked about the ban, national security issues, covering of the face is not a right because you lose your personal identity, but that's a different issue. The part that Mustafa is making here is extremely important, is that majoritocracy is pre-modern concept. So it's not just about democracy, it's about liberty. There's a reason the word democracy does not appear in our American documents. And Shadi Hamid is not the type of scholar that any Muslims should, I think, 
look towards for reform, for modernization. In fact, he is trying to launder, he is trying to whitewash Islamist supremacism. And his latest book is no different. And Akiol, in the conclusion, brings it home. He says, how far could such illiberal democracies go? In much of his book, Hamid focuses on the Middle East, especially the ambitions of Islamists, arguing that they can't, in fact, go too far. Yes, Islamist parties ultimately want Tatbik al-Sharia, or the application of Sharia, he writes, but they have struggled to define what it is exactly that they want. When they come to power, there will be some Islamization. He admits, like alcohol bans, limitations on women's sporting events, but all that is tolerable, he says, as even non-Islamists in the Arab world are socially conservative. One wonders about how more burning issues such as capital punishment for apostasy, blasphemy, free speech, or others, and his book offers no answers. So, again, another book that free thinkers should stay away from or at least read in order to be able to deconstruct because Hamid is again proving to be a tool and an operative of the Islamist movement that is far more dangerous than any militant or any anyone that excuses violence because at the end of the day he doesn't want to reform political Islam he wants to weaponize it he wants to use it to get into the hearts and minds of Muslims rather than secular liberal democracy, which is a far more effective mechanism for the rule of law across individuals, be they atheists, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, whatever it might be. We need a legal system for every nation that creates a national identity rooted in patriotism, rooted in the rule of law, and a rule of law that's compatible with every faith or no faith and with human beings. So I think... Sometimes I have some differences with Mustafa Akiol. I don't endorse everything he does, but at the end of the day, his review of Hamid's work is extremely important because so many people are fooled by the likes of Hamid, by the likes of that scholar from Cato who was even worse than Hamid on a lot of his stuff. With John Hoffman, and ultimately, again, I'd love to engage in a debate with any of these folks because I think the future of our country, our security, and the free world hangs in the balance, not only about China, not only about Russia, but also about how we navigate Islamism and jihadism. Well, thank you for joining me again this week. It's been a pleasure to share a lot of these ideas with you. Um, We will hold the topic of the billions into the coffers of universities in America from Arab regimes till next time. And we have a lot more to talk to you about also. Uh, But uh, again, share this podcast with your friends. Turn them on to the need to understand at least in a quarter of the world's population, what should be happening or what is happening or what isn't happening internally against jihad, against the Islamists. And find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. This is Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network and your faithful American Muslim correspondent, Zudi Jasser. God bless. 
stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.